Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think it's partly because we don't appreciate how much real value there is to be found in preventing basic failure. You know, we think of them as idiosyncratic and unimportant and maybe even small. But one of the basic failures that I describe in the book is Air Florida Flight 90, which thankfully was 40 years ago, but it involves a flight where the pilot and the co-pilot went through the takeoff checklist as one is required to do, but essentially in their sleep as a rote exercise rather than a mindful exercise. And despite it being an icy, cold January day in Washington, D.C., when the first officer said, uh, anti-ice. The captain said, off. And they just went on from there. APU, running, start levers, idle, right? Off they went. The proper answer to anti-ice was on. And it should have been turned on. But the failure to turn that on, that one error, that one mindless error led to the loss of 78 lives a few minutes later. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Amy, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, it's an honor to be here. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So as I was saying before we hit record, I think that your work has been cited in more of the books I've read and more of the work of our own guests than anybody I have ever known. And I thought, how do I introduce you? I was like, you kind of are like the godmother of psychological safety is how I would describe you at this point. Uh, so you have a new book out called The Right Kind of Wrong, all of which we will get into. Uh, but given your background and the nature of your work, I wanted to start with what is one of my favorite questions. That is, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what <laughs> impact did that end up having on where you've ended up and what you've ended up doing with both your life and your career? Wow. So by social group, you mean... Um, Shots, nerds, cheerleaders, whatever. Yeah. I mean, right, whatever it was. Right. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, I guess I have to say math geeks. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm to be honest. Yeah. I was, um, you know, I was, I was a good student. I was someone who liked, or I don't know if I liked it, but I was, I was hell bent on, on proving my worth, I guess. And so I was, I was quite popular for people needing help with problem sets. Yeah. 
So, I mean, what impact did that have, you know, on sort of what you ended up doing in the future? Because I know that you have an engineering background before the work that you do now. That's right. So, I, I mean, it, it sent me first into the realm of, you know, wanting to go to a good college, wanting to um, kind of, in a sense, prove that I was um, good enough and, and smart enough. I have a, I have a very brilliant older brother um, and I, he was, um, at MIT and studying engineering. So I thought I would do that too. Not MIT, but Harvard and study engineering. Um, and anyway, so it sent me, it sent me down a path of being good at school. And part of being good at school, certainly in high school, is being good at math and science. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a while. So maybe it slowed me down because it took me a while to figure out what I was really passionate about, good at, interested in, and, and more suited to make a real contribution to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I've talked to friends about high school math and I was a good student, but I think one of the things that's so striking about the way that we teach math, and I've talked to friends who are applied math majors, they're like, the way math is taught in high school makes absolutely no sense. You don't actually learn math because you don't learn why something is the way it is. You just learn how to do it. Like I got A's in AP calculus. I can yeah. barely add. You know, I'm an Indian who's horrible at math, which is like, you know, a, a big disgrace to all Indians, but, um, <laughs> this is something that I'm, you know, always curious about with educators. You know, one of the things that you talk a lot about in this book, I mean, you teach at arguably the most elite institution in the world. You're an alumni of that institution. And so every time I talk to an educator, the question I always come back to is if you were tasked with redesigning the education system from the ground up, let's say that you were basically brought into the next presidential administration as the head of education policy, based on the principles in your book, what would you change given that we had just had this huge college admission scandal and mm. largely the schools involved were schools like the ones you teach at. And I know because I'm an alumni yeah. of a school like that. I'm a Berkeley alum. So right. I know what kind of a pressure cooker that is. And the idea of being wrong in those environments is terrifying. Like we honestly are never taught anything. I mean, you know, when we were growing up as kids, like my dad would be like, you could bring home an A minus. He's like, why didn't you get an A plus? Because I got right. something wrong. Oh. You know, my dad did the same thing and, um, but it, it turned out he was joking. It, it, but kids don't have a great sense of humor. It, it, at least on, at least on things like that. So, you know, it turns out, I mean, I, what, what, what happened was I'd get a 99. He'd say, why didn't you get a hundred? But it was, it was literally meant to be a joke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess tell that to the amygdala, right? Yeah, um, exactly. So, so I, it's a wonderful question and it's a wonderful topic, which is, you know, what should schools do differently, uh, to, truly encourage and build learners, you know, rather than, than performers and know-it-allers. And, and I, and I think there's, um, there's an awful lot. And I do, I do believe the, the, this, the right kind of wrong, this new book is, is, um, quite aimed at that, at that topic. And, and so perhaps the first thing I'll say is they, schools should, should, um, do a better job of including Failure opportunities, um, in, in a, in a, in the discovery sense, especially. Mm. And if you think about it, you know, certainly in high school, and oftentimes this is true in college too, the, the main place that people experience failure is if they're on a, a, a formal sports team of some kind. Yeah. And that turns out to be a really important, um, builder of, of resilience and, and, even mental health, because, you know, 
good good athletes who are part of a real team um, necessarily experience a, a healthy rate of failures. You just simply can't win every game. You can't um, conquer every contest, and 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 understand that's just part of it, right? That's part of 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 excellence um, mm-hmm. in any endeavor that you take seriously is that failure comes along. But I don't think we've done a great job of teaching that in the academic setting. Uh, I'm a big fan and, and try to use often simulations where where people are put in teams or put in exercises where by definition, um, you know, some teams will do better than others. Some teams will fail. Some teams will succeed. And for all teams, even the most successful ones, there will be failures along the way because it's the nature of the task. And and they're designed to occur so that you can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I guess my, my sort of response to that is, is tell that to the kid in high school who's trying to get into Harvard. Uh, because I just finished reading Adam Grant's new book, Hidden Potential, where mm-hmm. he talks about our selection systems and how they're biased towards looking at, you know, our past performance. Like, for example, like if I'm applying to Harvard and you tell me, yeah, go ahead and fail, like having an F on a transcript is probably not going to improve my chances. Um, so how do you integrate opportunities with failure when you have a selection system that is basically designed to root it out almost? Well, I guess, I guess it depends on whether you're asking this from a policy perspective or a, you know, parent of an individual child perspective. Let's go with the parent of the individual child. Yeah. There's a lot of parents who listen to this show. Right. So then we have to say, all right, uh, let, well, we're, we're living here in the real world. So we, we, we can't give you advice that will, will backfire, right? Will in fact harm your chances. Um, although ironically, uh, one of the best ways to get into elite colleges is to be on an elite sports team in, in, um, you know, in high school. Uh, it, it it turns out, and I'm sure you know this, that that um, many of these young kids in in their whether they're playing soccer or 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 um, rowing or lacrosse or you name it are being actively recruited and and often have an assurance that they will be accepted. You know, with even just a you know reasonably good grade point average. Um, as, as early as late in, in their 10th grade or sophomore year. So, I mean, that's, that's not my expertise. That's another topic, but, yeah. um, and I'm not, not a, a fan of those sort of backdoor policies. Um, but they do exist. And since I am a fan of ensuring that your kids get a healthy, um, sort of dose of resilience and failure, maybe those two things go together. But more seriously, I'm not talking about coming, you know, ensuring that you have an F on your right. transcript. It's it's more about um, ensuring that you are pursuing the stretch opportunities through which you'll really learn and grow. And if you're doing that, there will be setbacks and and failures along the way. Again, failure maybe with a small F, not a capital F. And, and most colleges can, can suss out the difference between having taken all easy courses and taking some harder ones. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, essays can be, can be written about 
about, and many essays are written about challenges um, and, you know, really challenging things that were overcome. And, you know, one of the reasons that's a popular sort of essay genre is because colleges do want to know about resilience, right? They, they, they want to know about curiosity and drive. Like you're not just doing this to impress, you know, to prove yourself, to impress the adults in your life. You're, you're doing it out of a real thirst for, uh, for learning and, and ultimately for making a contribution to, to the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that one of the things that's so challenging is in the system that we have, it, it's <laughs> so hard to think about that because I, like, I can tell you, like, when I saw that admissions documentary, I thought to myself, man, I did not have this reaction when I got rejected or accepted to any school. Like, I remember when the Berkeley envelope came, I was like, okay, I got in. And I never yeah. saw anybody like, and I've seen, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it, like the reactions that these kids have yeah. on video. It's like, oh my God, this is the end of the world. Uh, so, I mean, I know you read about resilience yes. and we'll go much deeper into this, but one of the questions I have just right off the bat is there's certain people who, to your point, as you mentioned about the essays, will actually take a failure and make something of it and respond to it in a really mm-hmm. positive way. But there are others who, who don't necessarily. What is the difference? Like what role does upbringing, genetics, environment, all of that play in the resilience that people have inherently? And then, of course, how do they build it? Oh, you know, it's such a, I think it is a, a multifaceted uh, phenomenon, right? To have, to have resilience, some of it's going to come from your family, some from the good luck of great teachers, some from your peers. Uh, I, I, I do think, um, many, um, it's easy to underestimate the role of, of, of good friendships and, and robust learning messages that you can receive from, from people who care about you. And, and encourage you, right? And, and, and help you, um, think through the disappointments that are inevitable in, in your life, especially in adolescence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now, with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's uh, get into the book. And a couple of things come to mind. The first is you have an engineering background, so I kind of wonder how that background has applied in your role, both as a social scientist and educator, because they're so two different ways of looking at things. But I imagine like the systems thinking mindset from engineering probably plays Mm -hmm. a huge role in how you actually organize ideas and how you come up with these concepts. Because like I said, in my mind, you're the godmother of psychological safety. (laughs) Like I think your name is literally synonymous with those two words. Well, I don't know if that's good or bad, but um, it does it does it does make me want to make sure that we we're on the same page on what it means. You know, I define yeah. psychological safety as a as 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 an environment in which you believe you can speak up honestly uh, with questions, concerns, mistakes, you know, dissenting dissenting perspectives, and and that you believe that's welcome and appropriate. You know, not mm-hmm. that it's easy and effortless and comfortable. But that you understand that's what we do around here because of what's at stake. And so I, I studied it, as you know, for, for a very long time. And I kind of observed it to be an emergent property of a group. It's something that groups develop, you know, healthy teams, healthy work groups develop a sense of willingness to take interpersonal risks, willingness to be candid with each other, even though it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Because they care about the work or they care about the patients they're, they're taking care of or they care about the, you know, wonderful new product that they're innovating together or whatever it is that, that, that they're doing, you know, that, 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 that purpose and that, um, goal takes precedence over interpersonal comfort or wanting to look good. So it's, it's funny because I spoke to someone recently from Denmark who said, you know, I, I, I read the book. I love the book. And there's nothing in it that isn't obvious. And I said, I completely agree. I said, I completely agree. In a way, I almost take that as a compliment because um, what that means is by the time you finish reading it, 
you're convinced that I'm right, right? And, 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 but just because something is kind of obvious in retrospect does not mean that people are living their lives in the way that they need to or, or could to be more effective, more joyful, you know, more adventurous. Um, if, if they, if they took these, these concepts to heart. Right. So I, I think, but I, the reason I thought of that story is that I do believe my engineering background gives me a strong bias toward wanting to make things work. I really Mm -hmm. want things to work as they should. And I observe organizations and teams and, you know, social systems of all kinds. And I look at all the factors in place that get in the way of things working as they should. You know, people aren't speaking up when they aren't quite sure about something that gets in the way of safe, high quality patient care. For example, I, you know, I observe people, you know, more, more kind of whether they will acknowledge it to themselves or not, um, more interested in looking good than being good. And, and that's not a judgment. That's just a, an observation that our society, our education, our upbringings, can lead us towards some very irrational behaviors that ultimately just don't work out all that well. Yeah. Well, one question before we get into the details of the book itself. Like, so I have a one-year-old nephew and uh, observing how he learns and goes to the world is not only fascinating, but beyond inspiring because he doesn't have any, there's no sort of fear of failure inside of him. You know, he's like the social butterfly. He says hi to everybody. Apparently my sister can't take him shopping um, without him literally saying hello to every single person. And he literally just started learning to talk in his uh, vocabulary. I think in the last like month is up to a hundred words. And we're just like, okay, this is terrifying. He's going to be smarter than all of us. And we all kind of know it. We're like joking. He probably already thinks that. Um, but what happens, like what happens to that sort of insatiable curiosity? Because he'll go do anything. Like he'll, uh, you know, if we baby proof something, he'll go undo it. I mean, even if it hurts him or, you know, something falls on his head. Yeah. He'll, oh, he's, he watched me unlatch a baby gate while I was holding him and he watched me like a hawk. And then when I put him down, like 10 minutes later, he, he crawled over there. He's not tall enough to reach it yet. And then he started fiddling with the switch. And I was like, oh my God. Incredible. Yeah. But the thing is that as adults, we don't like an adult. Let, let's use the baby gate as a metaphor. If they couldn't open it on the first time, they'd be like, all right, I suck at this. And that I get was the it. End. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's fixed mindset, right? I yeah. am born without the gene for opening the baby gate. Nonsense. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, that's one of those, um, you know, beliefs that we start to internalize unconsciously, you know, that mm-hmm. we have fixed intelligence, you know, even the idea that this baby who sounds amazing, must be a genius, right? Every baby's a genius in, in some way, right? We're, we're born with this remarkable capacity for curiosity, for, for, for learning and growing and just we're, we're sponges for knowledge or our skills are getting better and better and better. And then sometime in elementary school, relatively early in elementary school, we start internalizing because we're very smart. This, the socially sent messages that we're supposed to get the right answer. Right. Not, mm-hmm. you know, not, not, you know, try stuff like if you don't get a round of applause for getting things wrong. Um, and, and, and so they start to overlearn what Carol Dweck would call the fixed mindset, right? You know, you're, we start to kids even, they know how to do this. They start sorting the kids into smart and not so smart. Um, and 
And then they don't want to be found out as not so smart, right? So they, um, both consciously and not start to, you know, hedge their bets and, and not, um, you know, not do the things for which they might be found out as not smart. Now, some kids just never lose it, right? They just, um, they're, they're perpetually, uh, they stay on that curiosity track and they, they, um, are just more motivated to, to try things and see what happens than to look good and hedge their bets. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, in my notes, I, I tagged one of my other blog posts. I wrote this blog post called How the Search for Right Answers Has Destroyed Higher Education, which is, you know, a bit, you know. Yeah, yeah provocative on purpose. Yeah, but I, I had a quote from Naval Ravikant in here. He said, one of the problems is that schools and our educational system, and even our way of raising children, replaces curiosity with compliance. And once you replace curiosity with compliance, you get an obedient factory worker, but you no longer get a creative right. thinker. And you right. need creativity. You need the ability to feed your brain to learn whatever you want. And I followed that up by saying right answers lead to good grades and open the door to elite universities, but they close the door to discovery, exploration, and growth. To reverse this pattern, we could stop conditioning students to believe their grades reflect their potential. Um, and even Seth Godin in the Eucharist session said the right answer is the enemy of art. And mm. so I think that makes a perfect segue into talking mm-hmm. about sort of the structure that you define for failure, because I think that you really kind of like teased it apart and really dissected it um, mm-hmm. by giving us a real like deep dive into the elements of failure. Uh, so let's start by talking about the the sort of core definitions that you opened the book with, with our failures, errors, and violations, because I think it's important that people understand that before we get into the rest of the conversation. Sure, absolutely. So I define failure, this is very colloquial, but as an outcome that deviates from desired results. It's, it's like an undesired result. Um, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the bad, not the good result. Um, and, and I define error which is synonymous with mistakes, um, as an unintended deviation from pre-specified standards, procedures, rules, recipes, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, by definition, you don't do that on, if you do it on purpose, then it's, you know, it's a violation or sabotage, but it, it, so it, mistakes are, are, are not on purpose. Whereas some undesired results, some failures are, some failures are indeed the result of of mistakes, but other failures are the result of incorrect hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of made me think about sort of, you know, would we deliberately violate something? Because I, I thought about it, it's like, well, okay, somebody might say, okay, I'm going to deliberately violate this sort of tried and true rule and come up with something better as a result. That's um, an I remember, experiment. That's yeah, an so experiment. I, tagged, I tagged a note yeah. titled deliberate, you know, violations. Yeah. Um, yep. But that's a good point. Yeah. So look, for, let's talk about generating an intelligent hypothesis so that we can kind of segue into the concept of intelligent failure. Sure. So to generate an intelligent hypothesis, um, whether in a formal sense as a scientist in a laboratory or in an informal sense as a, you know, high school kid, um, you know, wondering whether they could try out for that team, um, you do your homework first. You just find out of it and as, as best you can. What's already known, right? And, and then you're stuck with what isn't yet known, but you'd like to know. And so you're designing, um, a test or an experiment to help resolve some of that uncertainty, to help you learn something you don't yet know, you know, in, at least for you, new, te- new terrain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. So but it should also be in pursuit of a goal, you know, and again, yeah. this is going to be part of my definition of intelligent failure, right? So don't, 
this is, I think it's, um, you know, your, your, your well designed experiments are those that are hoping to take you a step closer to some goal. And they are thoughtful mm-hmm. in that you've done some of the, some of the background thinking or, or researching that you need to do to figure out what's worth testing. Yeah. So, I mean, these are what you call the four key attributes of intelligent failure. And I thought a perfect way to actually demonstrate this with a story was the Amy Webb online dating experiment, (laughs) which I told you I saw that and I was like, I literally copied that section, put it into my note taking app and typed into the AI. I was like, reverse engineer this for me so I can use it. But I thought it was such a great example of what you're talking about here. Absolutely. I mean, so Amy Webb, who's a, you know, an amazing thinker and, and I guess she's a, called a quantitative futurist. So she's a person who, um, is really into, into big data and, and, and using it to, uh, solve problems and, and, and predict the future. So she, um, she decided, um, that she, um, would join the world of online, uh, dating apps and, and, um, you know, try to, she was looking, she was really truly hoping to meet someone to spend her life with. And, um, um, she, she, one, one of the dates she actually got from this app was, was with a guy who at the restaurant, they went out for dinner, ordered, you know, tons of things, uh, from the, on the, from the menu, you know, to eat and even several bottles of wine, expensive wine. And it wasn't actually terribly interesting. So this is a failure, right? He wasn't really yeah. fun to talk to. Um, and uh, at some point, uh, the bill arrived. He, he, he excused himself to go to the, the restroom and um, never came back. Right? So not only was this a sort of wasted evening, which is pretty painful in its own right, but um, she ended up with a bill that was uh, roughly equivalent to a month's rent um, yeah. at the time. So that's the, that's the setup. Now, she wanted to learn, of course. Um, and so she um, was curious about, how was it that the dating algorithm had sort of sent her this guy? Like, why, why, what had she done wrong that led to this being a, a supposed match? And so she decided to set up a kind of experiment. Maybe, maybe we'll end an in intelligent failure here. Um, by, by she created fictitious, um, she, she's energetic because she created 10 fictitious um, profiles for, for uh, men, um, that were sort of just contained qualities she really was hoping to find in, in, in a date and life partner. And, um, and then, and then she waited to see what kind of women these fake, uh, profiles would attract. Now she didn't, you know, she didn't, um, she didn't want to deceive any more than she had to. So she didn't sort of, you know, lead any of these women on to, to, uh, um, think they really existed uh, but but she analyzed the profiles of the, of the ones who who were um connecting with these guys and and realized that she of course had many of the attributes they had she just hadn't thought about it that way she was kind of a uh, you know a geek if you will and mm-hmm. so she um she realized she had to put in because as a result of this experiment she realized that she had to put into her profile more than just her resume and her successes in her field um but but um um, include words like she's fun and adventurous, which she is, um, and maybe a better, um, you know, made a, made a better uh, photograph, put a better photograph up. You know, she'd been very sort of, you know, quick and, and, um, 
I guess, efficient the first time around. And then she, she also, um, learned that it was sensible to wait almost a day before answering a message and so on. And, you know, she, in a sense, cracked the code. She did, um, meet, um, she put her a new profile up for herself, a more successful uh, profile, um, in terms of, um, being able to track the kinds of people she was looking for. And then she did, in fact, meet a man she married, uh, and is still married to, and, uh, they have a daughter and so on and so forth. So, um, she, I think the most important thing about this story is that this, you know, this, a failure like that might have sent mere mortals, you know, away from such an app ever, you know, forever. That's that. Don't like it. Didn't work. Terrible waste. I mean, a a a month's rent would definitely piss. Yeah. That would piss me off a lot. Right. Yeah. I mean, anger would be just, but I guess you could also use some of that anger as the driving force to kind of crack the code. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love that because it was such a great story and it's such a great example of like taking a very data driven approach to yes. something that doesn't work. And I, I think that most of us, uh, I think, try to get this sort of, you know, well, woo woo sort of feel good approach to like dealing with this. It's like, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps, whatever. Right. You know, feed ourselves right. with platitudes. But this was such yeah. a such a different way of thinking about uh, failure. Yes. And it's not, you know. That's, I think you're right that we often get this message, you know, of oh, failure. Yes. Let's be resilient. Try, try again, but not. Okay. Unpack it. What happened? What are the key insights? Where are the shortcomings? You know, wh- what are the actual contributors to the outcome rather than just the sort of quick and dirty? Oh, I didn't try hard enough, but what yeah. nonsense. It wasn't that you didn't try hard enough. It's that you didn't have the right you know, the right hypothesis, I guess. Mm-hmm. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's uh, shift and, and get into the next concept, which is basic failures. Because you say, unlike intelli- intelligent failures, which occur in unknown territory, basic failures involve errors in well-trodden terrain. Basic failures are not the right kind of wrong. In the continuum of failure types, the furthest from intelligent failures Mm-hmm. Basic failures are unproductive, wasting time, energy, and resources, and they're largely preventable. And I loved, you know, some of the things you talked about here because they were all just small, stupid things that all of us right. do all the time. Like I literally have d- had days right. when I'm like, I can't find my keys. And the dumb thing is I have like a little tracker on there. I just hadn't activated it. And the funny right. thing is that I still right. haven't activated it, even though I have an app no. for it and everything. It's been a right. while. It was like about a right. month ago and I like even right. wrote a note to do it. And I still haven't done it. But in my mind, that's like a, a kind of an example. But talk to us about yeah. basic failures because they seem like they happen in everyday life. It, it's absolutely so. Basic failures are failures caused by a single cause, usually a mistake. You know, you you can't find your keys, so you put you you put them down somewhere. You can't find them. Um, you know, you put the you um, so you make you make a mistake in the recipe, and you get you get a bad dish. Um, and they are preventable. I mean, it's sort of it's obvious that they're preventable because they're in familiar territory. And when we are at our best, we have prevented them. Um, so I have a, a, a slide in, in a new talk I'm giving about this that I can't, I can't help but call it the boring slide because it is so boring. Um, and it's, you know, the, the, the basic things that prevent basic failure are things like training, uh, you know, checklists, um, uh, speaking up, um, when, when you're not quite sure. I mean, blocking and tackling right? the, the, that, that everybody in a way, you know, brush your teeth, right? Everybody knows this. Um, and of course there's a, there's a, a deeper level of, well, why don't we do it? And I think it's partly because we don't appreciate how much real value there is to be found in preventing basic failure. You know, we think of them as, 
idiosyncratic and unimportant and maybe even small. But one of the basic failures that I describe in the book is Air Florida Flight 90, which thankfully was 40 years ago, but it involves a flight where the pilot and the co-pilot went through the takeoff checklist as one is required to do, but essentially in their sleep as a rote exercise rather than a mindful exercise. And despite it being an icy, cold January day in Washington, D.C., when the first officer said, uh, anti-ice, the captain said, off. And they just went on from there, APU, running, start levers, idle, right? Off they went. The proper answer to anti-ice was on. And it should have been turned on. But the failure to turn that on, that one error, that one mindless error, led to the loss of 78 lives a few minutes later, right? And that's, so that is a basic failure. Um, and it, uh, maybe I, I bring it up because it demonstrates how, you know, the, 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 the mindful inclusion of practices like checklists and the codification of best practices that checklists represent, uh, and, you know, the, the, the training and of course the, the willingness to, to converse thoughtfully in the process of even doing very familiar work is a source of enormous value. Um, it's, it's, it's really, um, important, uh, to put these best practices in place in your life, in your companies. Mm, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I thought of when I read that. I thought of the check engine light on my car. And, and I thought to myself, I'm like, you know what? I'm right. This is like one of those, right. the check engine light is basically what you call a potentially ambiguous threat, which I know you go into later. Where we'll yes. get it. But I remember every time I've ignored that, right. I, the lesson I learned is like, the, the longer you wait to get that thing checked, the more expensive the repair gets to you. Yeah. Every time. Like, there's right. never been without question. I learned that the hard way and I was like, okay, that is it. I'm never doing that again. Right. This is the topic of preventative maintenance or... You know, as you say, you know, just well, there's a little signal there that maybe it's maybe we've moved slightly beyond preventative and it's time to, you know, truly get this thing checked out. I mean, it might be a nothing. It might yeah. be that programming that the car company now put in to sort of make sure you come back, but it might actually be a something. And we just don't think preventative maintenance or maintenance period is like worthy of our cognitive effort, right? It's, it's, it's not worthy of our attention. Um, when in fact, I would argue there's uh, enormous value there. Well, let's talk about assumptions and cognitive biases, because I think this is really important when it comes to both the combination of like, you know, taking a prescriptive advice from people. And we'll talk about that a bit more when we get to context. But you say that assumptions are taken for granted beliefs that feel like facts because we aren't consciously aware of them. We don't hold them up for scrutiny. Many are harmless. We can safely assume our car is parked where we left it the night before. If we stopped to challenge every assumption we'd make, we'd never get out of the door in the morning. But then you right. go on to say, when presented with the choice between admitting mistakes or protecting our self-image, the decision is easy. We want to believe that we're not at fault. So we find every reason to justify what we did as correct, which basically you say is, is the fundamental attribution error, which exacerbates mm -hmm. the problem. So you've got these two conflicting things going on, right? Like we know right. that we're making these assumptions that we take for granted. Um, because it's, it's funny, I, I've joked about this. I've been working on a book about cognitive biases titled Everybody's Full of Shit, Including Me, because in <laughs> different contexts, that's actually true. Like the same advice yeah. that is life-changing in one context could be absolutely destructive in another. You know, we have to, you're, you're right. I mean, I don't think there's so much contradictory as two 
um, powerful forces that lead us to not behave as rationally as we might otherwise behave, right? So, so one of them is that very strong desire to look good to others and to ourselves. And so, you know, we just almost instantly push the blame somewhere else, right? It wasn't me. I didn't contribute to that outcome. And in a way, that's a, it's an, it's an error. Well, it's, it's a, it's technically an error, but it's also emotionally an error because in fact, think about the power and, and self-confidence entailed in going, Oh, I did that, right? I, I contributed to that failure, to that bad outcome. There are things that I did or didn't do that allowed that to unfold as it did. That's actually quite empowering because you're, you're recognizing that you now have an opportunity to go forward in a different, take a different path, right? And so it, it's, you're both strong enough and smart enough to recognize it, but you're also kind of courageous and, and confident enough, um, to say, yeah, that's okay, right? But I'm a fallible human being. I can, I can make an error and go forward. I don't need to distance myself from it, pretend it didn't happen, et cetera. It's clearly from a place of greater wisdom. So once we appreciate that, right? Once we appreciate the greater wisdom involved in, in fully taking accountability, taking into account how we contributed, whether even if it's just a small way is, is quite empowering, quite self empowering. Um, and, and then, so that's the, you know, that's kind of the, the part where we've got to override our self-protection instinct to have more of your nephew's instincts of like, what's next, right? Okay. I fell down. Well, I pick, I pick myself right back up. Like I'm, I'm eager and right? I'm eager to go forward, not backward. And the, the part about assumption making is harder because, you know, by definition, when we're making assumptions, we're unaware of making them. Um, and, and for that, I think of two things. One is just that the occasional or maybe periodic pause, you know, the pause to, to become more mindful. Okay. Wait a minute. What am I missing? I'm sort of assuming as if now I wonder if that is, you know, what would happen if that weren't the case? And some, and the other part of that is to, to, to see, well, I wonder what other people might think. You know, maybe I'll ask my spouse, maybe I'll ask my, my good friend or my colleague. Um, how do you see this? Right. So I, I think assumption breaking out of our assumptions is a team sport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get into complex failures because I, I mean, I think the most obvious one that we've seen and that I think anybody can relate to is all the things we saw during COVID. And I know you use those yeah. as really, those are just easy examples, I think, for people to understand. Um, you know, what this is, but you basically say that a complex failures have more than one cause, none of which created the failure on its own. Usually a mix of internal factors such as procedures and skills collides with external factors mm-hmm. such as weather or suppliers delivery delay. Sometimes the multiple factors interact to exacerbate one another. Sometimes they simply compound as with the straw that broke the camel's back. So, you know, talk to us about that and, and, you know, one, how they occur. And basically I think that'll make a nice segue into building the systems to avoid them. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, they, they, they occur. And again, they come in small and large sizes, you know, consequential or, or less consequential, um, failures. But, and what makes them, you know, challenging is that they have so many causes and any one of them on its own wouldn't lead to the failure. So we were tempted to not 
you know, not care very much or not notice the small deviations that are going to add up and, and produce, um, this bad outcome. That's the downside. The upside is there are many, many handholds. You know, like if you're doing rock climbing, you're, you're looking for viable handholds. Well, complex failures give us many small opportunities to wake up and notice that something's amiss that might matter. You know, that little light on your car. That let's say you just decide, okay, I'm gonna sit, I'm gonna interrogate that, and I'm gonna take that one seriously for a change, and see what I can learn, and just decide to engage more wholeheartedly um, with those small signals. So, basically, you have what you call the sort of three practices for getting good at the science of failing well, which are contextual awareness, self-awareness, and mm-hmm. systems awareness. So let's start mm-hmm. with context, which is probably the topic I can't stop beating like a dead horse because okay. where I see context go awry is with prescriptive advice. Like, mm. I, this, like I feel like self-help books are completely context-blind and the yes. people who read them are even more context-blind. So one, why are we context-blind? Because like people will come to me and ask me for advice on podcasting. I'm like, I have no idea how to grow this thing because I started 13 years ago and I was the beneficiary of good timing. I can't replicate yep. that for you. Um, right. And yet, yeah, it was we, unique. We, but the funny thing is that we use outliers as role models and we think we're going to replicate the results without taking into account the most obvious variable of all, the person that you're staring at in the mirror, which right there is part of the context, but genetics, yeah. timing, environment, all of these are contextual variables that distort the effectiveness. And yet we're largely context blind, I think, when yes. we go looking for advice. So talk yes. to me about how we actually raise yeah. our contextual awareness or do yeah. I have to write a book called Everybody is Full of Shit, including me? <laughs> I guess I, I'm, I'm not a fan of, of, of books that can't be mentioned on morning television with their title. <laughs> you might have to, you know, everyone is full of stuff, right? I yeah. don't know. Um, but, but the... Um, Yes, I'm, I'm glad you want to start there because to me, context is the most important concept in, in the book. And it, and it's because, in fact, one of the reasons I wrote this book is that our failure conversation has been context blind forever. Right? It, it's, you're either in the camp that says fail fast, break things, et cetera, you know, or you're in the camp that says, no, failure's not an option, not here in the real world where I work. And both are Right. And both are incomplete. Right? It, it, it depends. Right? So, um, if you are in a context, right, where very little is known, there's a viable goal that you're pursuing. Um, you have no choice but to fail and fail well, right? To have thoughtful tests, hopefully small enough that no, you know, not, nothing really horrible goes wrong and no one gets hurt so that you can learn more and, and progress toward your goal. Your early your podcast 13 years ago was not your podcast today. It was an experiment. It was a, it was, it got, you got better and better. It got better and better and so on. But the two, the two simplest and most essential bits of context that I like to look at are, um, what are the stakes, right? And first and foremost in human safety, right? If, if you're, if you're in passenger airplane, you, as a, as a pilot, you are mindful alert, awake, using your checklist, right? You're, you're treating that context with the seriousness that it deserves. Um, you know, if you're in a laboratory, 
You should be having fun experimenting. And so the, the stakes, you know, are the stakes high or low in human safety, economic and uh, reputational um, um, domains? And what's the level of uncertainty? Is it high or low? And if, if, if it's, um, if it's, if it's, the uncertainty is very, very high, we have no choice but to experiment to learn more. If the uncertainty is very, very low, well, let's use best practice and let's use it, you know, mindfully, um, particularly when this, when the stakes are high. So this is, I think so many failures, so many of the failures I've studied would have been avoided by a deep and thoughtful awareness of what kind of context is this. Yeah. Well, it's funny, but, and maybe you did have an illustration in the book for this, because I know you had a bunch of them, but I just like, as you're saying that, and I'm imagining a four quadrant, uh, model for yeah. this. Yeah. I did all that. It's funny. It is four quadrants, but, um, it's got six potential quadrants because yeah. I have, I have basically very consistent contexts like manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And then I have well understood contexts like patient care or surgery that still have a lot of variability or passenger air travel. So I call that variable context. And then I have, you know, laboratories or a dating that's a mm-hmm. novel context. And, and then so that, that, that's a, that's three categories. And then there's high and low stakes. So that potentially gives rise to six cells, but there's really only four meaningful ones because the, the, um, upper right two, you know, the, the variable and um, novel contexts where the stakes are high are both areas for just very, very cautious, you know, mindful experimentation and execution. Yeah. And the, you know, the, the lower, the lower, uh, uh, the lower right is also unique in a sense. Like we really don't have a clue what's going to work. The stakes are super low. Let's just go to town having fun experimenting. And, and so, you know, it, it ends up being a two by two, but a kind of a slightly off kilter one. Well, so the thing I wonder about is where creative work falls into, you know, these different contexts, because I, like I, I thinking about this, just let, let's take publishing as an example, since we're talking about a book. I mean, I've had people yeah. come to me and say, I want you to coach me to help right. me write a, a million, you know, sell a million copies. And I'm like, well, I have no idea how to do that. I've never done that. Right. And it reminds me of the concept of naive realism that you write about later in the book. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you say a lack of situational awareness can spawn a variety of preventable failures, usually due to a cognitive bias called naive realism. And in my mind, the person who literally has no audience, no, you know, online presence yeah. is like, I want you to help me write a book that sells a million seller. copies. I'm like, I don't even know how to do that. That's naive right. realism. Nobody but, does. Yeah. It's, so, so I would say that is, you know, that writing a book is in the domain of very high uncertainty. I mean, it's, 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 it, well, sorry, it's totally novel. Like if you want to write a book at time zero, that book does not yet exist. There are no words on a page. So maybe a proposal, but that's your first step is write a proposal. So, um, so it's, it's enormously uncertain how those sentences are going to string together and whether there'll be any good and so on. You have no, but the stakes, at least at time zero, are pretty low, right? Yeah. You're not yet going to fall flat on your face and, you know, fail wildly and visibly in front of all the world because you haven't even begun. So treat it that way. I think a lot of times people who want to write something, maybe not a book, maybe even an article, they tie themselves up in knots because they're so anxious about failing, right? About it Mm -hmm. not working, about it not being good. No writing is good. (laughs) (laughs) At the beginning, right? People yep. always think, how did you learn to write so well? It's like, well, 
I just write badly and then I clean it up and clean it up and clean it up. Like I said, I'm actually not, I don't know if anyone's a good writer. Some people are probably very good writers. I'm not a good writer, but I am a heck of an editor. Like yeah. when I write bad, I can then look at it and go, oh, that's bad. I'm going to make it better. And most days I sit down and look at yesterday's writing. It's horrible. But mm-hmm. I'm just laughing. The, after I've sort of rolled up my sleeves and spent a little more time with it, I've beaten it into some uh, somewhat of submission. So I think writing a book or writing anything is is novel, cre- you know, creative, as you said, is sort of novel almost by definition. Not always. Yeah. And and initially at least low stakes and Mm -hmm. and so you should have a free yourself up to experiment and pay close attention to what you're producing whether it's interesting show it to some friends or colleagues to get feedback as you must in order to really make it better you know it's funny so you said mentioned editing because james clear who wrote atomic habits he told me the Mm. exact same thing and that book has sold millions of copies he said i'm not a great writer i'm a better editor than i am a writer but, you know, it's fine. You kind of have like dissected the psychology behind something I said in one of my books where I said, you know, there's probably no greater time in the life of a creative when, than when you don't have an audience, uh, even though yes. it's a thing you crave, because at that point you have yeah. nothing to lose. Like there's yes. nobody expecting anything. Yes, that's exactly right. And yet we don't act like that. You know, no, we, we act more anxious and reluctant and, you know, and it's like, no, you don't have anyone to offend yet. Well, the two most common responses I got in survey data from our readers when I asked, what is the thing that is keeping you from doing this creative thing? Fear of public opinion and fear of creative <laughs> judgment. And I'm yeah. like, by who? Yeah. That's the, the well, that's the most amazing part. And you're not going to just overnight have a million people look at it and go, it's crap, right? What, what's yeah. going to happen is no one will even get to see it unless it's good enough to get to see it. Right? Because yeah. you send your proposals out and... They, they get rejected. So then, you know, that's okay. You got a rejection. That's painful a little bit, but it's not um, a reputational blow because nobody else saw it. Yeah. Well, let's finish this up by talking about both system and self-awareness because um, mm. I think that like mm. as a content creator who basically has all these different automations running, like I finally understand systems and I never really, you know, thought they were... I'd, I'll give you a ridiculous example. I had bad grades in college. So, you know, at Berkeley, if you're uh, aspiring yeah. econ or business major and your grades suck, you go to environmental econ. And I remember sitting in a <laughs> class my senior year and this professor was explaining how to use a utility function to maximize the amount of milk that you could get from a cow. And I thought to myself, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done in college. I'm never going to use this. Fast forward to now, 20 five plus years later, I have a course called Maximize Your Output. And the entire course is based on a premise of maximizing the content you can create using your existing knowledge. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, that's the exact same thing in a different context. And I realized, I was like, oh, so it was useless in one context, but useful in another. Yeah. And to me, that's system at work in a lot of ways. So that's what we, in our natural um, way of thinking, and and it's, it's then made worse in the school system is to go narrow, go small, look at parts, you know, to become the expert in some element, some part, um, rather than to sort of step back and develop an appreciation for how the parts fit together. And yet the behavior of most you know, companies, technologies, uh, every kind of system you can imagine is determined more by the relationships among the parts than by the parts themselves. 
And, and so it's really developing this appreciation for the ways in which things work together and how that affects outcomes, particularly the outcomes you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Well, and can you, like, so I gave you the example of, you know, using knowledge to create content. Um, but do you have any others specifically with systems? I mean, like in our day to day lives, for example, I think we can build, cause Ramit Sethi talks about this even in his finance work. He talks about like systems being ways to completely automate behavior that you want to have happen. Yeah. It's, it's, um, gosh, I don't even know. It's funny. I mean, this is the, this, this one is the hardest one because it's, um, there's so much depth, I mean, to, to, to systems thinking, and I'm not doing it justice in, in one chapter in the book, but the cognitive habit of pausing to think who or what else will be affected by this decision or this action. Um, and what are some of the downstream consequences of, uh, of doing this now on other things that we care about and, and just that that simple shift, really, it's a shift from me now, which is my mm-hmm. instinct. What do I want? And I want it now to us later, right? In the future. Like, and part of, you know, part of, um, you know, wisdom and part of, of, of just becoming, you know, growing up and, and trying to make a difference in some realm is to, it's not, it's delay gratification is too simple. But to think more fully about the various effects of, of small actions that might even be thought of as shortcuts in, in the near term. Mm-hmm. I know this is too abstract. Um, you know, when, when the, one of the, one of the studies that really brought this home for me was a, with, with Anita Tucker, um, at BU where we were studying uh, nurses and, that in their day-to-day life, they just, they encounter on average like a problem every hour or so. You know, something that is not functioning the way it should, that needs to be fixed immediately so that they can continue their, you know, their patient care work. And mm-hmm. what we found was only about 8% of the problems that we studied you know, in very detailed ways led nurses to either report them or, uh, either take action or ask someone else to take action to kind of prevent its recurrence. And, 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 and part of that, and then it, it, and that meant that they were sort of doomed to continue to face this small tide of, you know, little problems where things just weren't working as they should. And it's in part because people just have a hard time seeing that this, what your grandmother called a stitch in time saves nine, that, you know, if you, you do some, little extra work right now, it'll really make your life better later and, and tomorrow. And by the way, make other people's lives better too. Yeah. But we're so in the here and, and, mm-hmm. and yet we can, of course, learn to be in the us and later. Yeah. I mean, I think that if anybody explained this concept so simply that it finally clicked for me, it was Ray Dalio in Principles, where he talks about first, second, and third order consequences. Yeah. And you're like, you're right. Like that one decision. And most of us don't like, I, you know, I, I, I know I've written about it in a blog post. It's like, okay, like, let's say you want to move to some other country. You think, all right, I'm going to get to go live in this foreign country. That's the first order consequence of you move. Right. But what if you grow apart from your family? Like people don't account for those things. I realize exactly. like we're really exactly. bad because of temporal discounting. Right. <laughs> right. Right. 
And yet we can, and, you know, we can become aware of temporal discounting and we can, you know, uh, form a little kind of quick brainstorm to just think those things through. And it doesn't take, you know, a PhD to come up with like five or six second and third order consequences. And then we can look at them thoughtfully and decide whether we're as happy as we were a few minutes ago to do this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, this has been absolutely fascinating. I, I, you know, it's funny because you are really, you mentioned that somebody said everything in this book was so obvious. And I, despite <laughs> it, despite it being obvious, I think that it, you know, you really dissected something that so many of us are, you know, so uncomfortable with, uh, and haven't for a long time. Cause I, so you know, I want to finish with, you know, maybe one other area. I think that, you know, feeling like an imposter is something that is yes. deeply tied to this. Cause I'll tell you, when I got into Berkeley, I still did that. I, I remember to this day, I was like, this was a mistake. Like there mm-hmm. had to have been a, a screw up. And I, and then I remember at the end of Adam Grant's book, he writes a story about how he thought he, he said there's like 50% of students at Harvard who actually think they deserve to be there. And he said another 50% think some mistake was made. And I fall into the second category for sure, because yep, like I remember I had, a, you know, like an admissions officer come to my school and I was in all state band and I was like, she was like, oh yeah, you know, that'll work out great. I, I, there are times I'm like, what are the chances that she somehow remembered that out of 10,000 applications? Right. Like, Very low. Very yeah. low. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so talking about that, like, cause I honestly, like I realized at a certain point that it didn't matter, like book deal, the publisher, you know, like yeah. raising venture around in front of I am like, wow. And Jennifer Wallace wrote this amazing book called Never Enough when the achievement, you know, mindset becomes toxic. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, no matter what you achieve, you still feel like a failure. Right. Well, you know, I, I, um, I like to, I mean, I, I say this with a smile. It's like once I, um, and of course I have to keep re-recognizing this, but once I recognize that I'm a fallible human being and every other human on the planet is also a fallible human being, it takes some of the pressure off. Like where each of us is a fallible human being living and working with other fallible human beings. So get over it, right? We're, we're all both, um, we all have a perfect right to be here, wherever here is, whether that's the job you currently have, the college you're currently in. Um, and look forward. It, it, don't worry so much about how you got here, but look forward as to what are you going to do with it? Right? What, what small difference do you want to make um, with the opportunities uh, that that you have by virtue of you know the various experiences you've had? And that's the question and sort of live, if we can live a little more joyfully with our fallibility, that was the hope with this book. Um, we all, we all are fallible. We can, once we're, once we're okay with that, we can, I think, more easily increase the percentage, at least, of intelligent failures that we have in our lives and decrease, maybe wildly, the percentage of basic and complex failures that we experience in our lives. And then have lives of more joy, adventure, and even accomplishment. Beautiful. Uh, well, that'd be such a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable. <laughs> what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? A recognition of their purpose in life, I guess. I think once you recognize, not 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 necessarily in a super formal way, but be, become um, comfortable with who you are and what you want to contribute, then I think unmistakability follows. Beautiful. 
Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us to share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else you're up to? Well, I guess um, the book the book is a great place to start, right? Kind of wrong, the science of failing well. Um, AmyCEdmondson.com is um, a website with somewhat somewhat uh, incomplete uh, information, but I try to I try to keep it up with my um, um, recent articles and, and so on. Amazing! And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.